Good morning again, and uh, I hope you're all doing well this morning and you're ready to, uh, to hear a message from God's Word. Uh, if you have your Bibles, oh thank you, Alicia. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 25 as we continue our look at the Olivet Discourse this morning. And this morning we'll read from verses 14 to 30, which is the parable of the talents. Read with me. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man travelling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability. And straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. Likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. So he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, Thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchanges. And then at my coming, I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it to him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your precious, precious word. We thank you that we have the freedom and the ability to be able to meet in this way and to learn from it. And we pray that even now that we would make the most of this time, that you would use me to declare the truth to my brothers and sisters here and that each of us would have our hearts, our hearts wide open, Lord, that we might accept the truth and live by it, that we might grow and become fruitful servants. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
And websites are good. Websites are very handy things to have. And the church has a website. And probably about a half of you here probably found us on the website. So it has advantages. It tells you where to find us. It tells you a bit about us. It tells you what we believe. And so people get a bit of a, a, bit of a hint of what we're like as a church before they actually come here. And I like that. That way the people who come here know already what to expect, more or less. There are sometimes um, disadvantages to having a website. Because we sometimes get inundated with emails and things from people who really don't want or aren't interested in coming to church or knowing about the truth. They just, they just, uh, they'd like, they'd like to, to make an issue about certain things. And, uh, and recently there was, a, um, there was a lady who sent an email uh, through the website. She'd found us, she read about us, she saw what we were about and what we believed and what we did and she looked through all the ministries and, and she's, um, she had a particular problem. And she rebuked me in an email saying that um, it was evident in the email that, that we didn't allow women to utilise their talents and their strengths as God had given them. And she, and she looked through our sermons and she noticed names like Frank, Eddie, David, Alan, Steve. No females in there. And she said, you know, how dare you? Stop women with obvious strengths in your church from preaching the gospel. And I responded to the email and I said, um, well, we don't normally have women preachers because, and I gave her a number of scripture verses back. And I, I, I just quoted them and I said, this is the reason that we do what we do and, and why we do it. To which she replied that we were old-fashioned and legalistic. Um... You can imagine where the conversation went from there, nowhere. Because once she had rejected what the Bible had to say about the topic, I really had nothing more to say, to be honest with you. So what she was saying, what she was criticising me particularly for, was that I wasn't utilising the talents that people had. I wasn't allowing them to express their talents and allow God to use their talents in that particular way because I was legalistic in my, uh, my approach. But if legalism means that I'm following what the Bible teaches, then I'll, I'll wear it. I'm happy with it. What was Jesus referring to when he said talents in this passage? What's he talking about? Is this a talent that he's talking about? You know, the natural ability that people have to be able to play a piano or sing or, or to, you know, to to be an accountant or to, or to have these, these gifts, obviously, that people have that other people don't have. Are those the talents that Jesus is talking about today? Because, you know, if you do a, uh, a cursory look at the, uh, the sermons on the internet, you'll find that many of them actually think it's those type of talents. And if you have a particular talent to sing, you should be using it for the Lord. Now, this is what Jesus is talking about over here. I would beg to differ. A talent in this particular passage was a measure of weight. How heavy something was. And actually the word talent is a direct, what we call a transliteration. It mean, the, the original word in Greek 
let me see if I, talenton, talenton. They just took off the O-N at the end and they turned it into an English word. A talent was a measure of weight or a Greek measure of weight, but it was generally associated with a sum of money. So you could have a talent of silver or a talent of gold. And generally it was a talent of silver. It was the most common use of currency. And we know it has to do with money because um, it's mentioned here that the money that he gave them. If silver was a, a, in, in view here, it was a considerable amount of money. You see, my friend Mr Google, who most of you know, says that some authorities say that the talent typically weighed about 33 kilos. There could have been between 20 to 70 or to 40 kilos uh, on, in our scale of weight. And if, um, if it referred to gold, for instance, 35 kilos of gold at about, well, $1,000 would have been a fair amount of money. $1,000 per ounce, sorry. So some people automatically assume that because the word is talent, that they're actually, it actually means or refers to the talents that people have. That's not necessarily what it means. In fact, if any part of this passage actually refers to the talents that people have, the closest thing would be, see in verse 15, this is in verse 15, unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. Look what it says here, to every man according to his several ability. If anything refers to talents here, it's that. It's the, the ability they had to be able to handle it. Now that would mean that the master knew the servants and realised what their potential was. So the, the one who had greater potential, he gave probably more money to, who was greater, showed greater responsibility, greater greater uh, aptitude at being able to invest and those type of things, he gave more to. So if anything refers to natural ability, it has to do with, or it could have to do with, according to his several ability. But even that may be a stretch. Let's have a look at what this passage is about. Because we have to understand what Jesus is referring to when he's talking about money in this way. Because last time... I checked, God didn't give me a particular sum of money worth a hundred or $600,000 uh, and say, go and invest this and do something with it. Um, but Jesus is obviously referring to something here which is deeper for us to understand. The idea, though, here, just so we start off on the right foot, is that the master had given his servants something of immense value. He'd given it into their hands and, they, and their job was to make good use of it in order to invest and do things with that it might return a, a, might give back more to the master than what he originally gave them. We're talking about investment. And what we see today and what, we, what, we, what comes out in this passage is with respect to the one who was given one, it was a tragic waste of an opportunity. It was a tragic waste of an opportunity. Let's go back to verse 14. Let's begin looking at it together. For the kingdom of heaven, verse 14, for the kingdom of heaven is as a man travelling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. Now, who was Jesus referring to here? Who do you think this man from a far country is? Well, Jesus is referring to himself. 
man who travelled from a far country is Jesus Christ. Man who travelled from the farthest country that I know. He came all the way from heaven to the earth to be able to deliver his goods to his servants. And John chapter 1 verse 10, you don't need to turn there, just listen. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. He came from heaven to his own people. So the first thing we need to understand in this passage, in context, is that the first reference, the first people that Jesus is talking about when he's referring to these servants are his people Israel. He came literally to his own people Israel and his own people did not receive him. So when we're looking at the Olivet Discourse, we need to understand that Jesus first and foremost is speaking to his people Israel. And it's just, this part's no different here. Because Jesus did not come to the Italians as much as I would have liked him to. He didn't go to the Greeks because they're a bit too stubborn. No, I'm only joking. He came to his people, Israel. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, verse 8, just to make this a little bit clearer. Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. Now, in this passage, a Roman centurion comes to Jesus and requests something of him that his servant may be healed. And Jesus looks at the centurion, the faith that he has, and he then makes the following observation. Verse 8 says, The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's how it finishes the same way as the parable that we first read. They shall be cast into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who is Jesus referring to here? Was this passage just a passage about having great faith? And although faith is, is the thing in view here, the important thing, Jesus is making a comparison between this Gentile who wasn't supposed to have this faith and his own people, Israel, to show up and contrast the faith that he saw. And he says, I haven't found this faith in all of Israel. My own people, I haven't found this faith. And he's saying it to their shame because they should have had the faith. They should have shown much more having known the scriptures, having been given the counsel of God from many years before. They knew his laws, his statutes, and they should have had much greater faith. So Jesus says when he sees this centurion, he goes, I haven't found this faith in all of Israel. 
Guys, look at him. He's a Roman. He doesn't have what you have. Now it's, and it says in this passage, the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. The children of the kingdom. Now, in first glance, when you first read that passage, you think to yourself, the children of the, of the kingdom, would they be saved or not saved? So when people first read this passage, or if you go to some commentators, they'll say the children of the kingdom are saved individuals who weren't faithful. But that's not true. The children of the kingdom here refer to, refers to Israel. Israel were his own, but his own received him not. And they were the ones who rejected him. They were the children of the kingdom. But the children of the kingdom didn't accept the king when he came. So unfortunately for them, they would be cast into outer darkness. And that outer darkness where there's gnashing of teeth is not an outer suburb of heaven. It's not one of the slums of heaven, mind you. Some people have this, uh, are starting to get a bit of an idea that, that this outer, outer darkness is a place where, where, where heaven is, but it's not exactly heaven or the best parts of heaven. I don't know any bad suburbs in heaven, to be honest with you. Never heard any, any bad suburbs in heaven. No, this is referring to hell. This refers to the people who have lost their opportunity, who have missed the chance. Their saviour came and they rejected him. The Bible says that they will be cast into outer darkness and they will grind their teeth. They will grind their teeth. Not from just the pain, but from the fact that they've actually thrown away the only opportunity they had to find eternal life. So in the same way, when Jesus refers to these particular group of men as his servants, understand it in the same way. Just because he calls them his servants doesn't mean they're saved. Because some people take this passage and they say, you know that servant that got the one talent? That he was saved. But because he wasn't faithful with that one, he lost his salvation and he went to hell as a result. Now that is the exact opposite of what scripture teaches. In fact, the way you read this is that Jesus came to his own. His own people, his own servants who were meant to have recognised him as the Messiah. And he gave them his message. He gave them a gospel straight from heaven. And they rejected that truth. Some people accepted it, but some rejected it. So Jesus calls these men his servants and they were supposed to be his servants. But we'll find out something about which ones really were and which ones were hypocrites and imposters. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As he did before, Jesus was not sent to the Gentile nations, he was sent to Israel for a specific reason. The message that Jesus came with, he came to give or deliver to his own people. It was not given to the Gentiles. The Jews had the privilege and the responsibility of receiving their king and also then delivering that message, that incredible message that has changed our lives 
with the rest of the world. Turn to Acts chapter 10, verse 36. I'd like to give you a demonstration of what, what Peter says about that responsibility that they had. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. Peter preaching here. He says, The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. To him gave all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Peter saying that God had chosen them to, do, to receive the message, to be witnesses of what Jesus did and the gospel that was preached to take that in themselves, to start sharing it with everyone else. God sent the word to his children Israel. And it was published, Peter says, throughout all of Judea and in Jerusalem, starting off in Galilee. And Peter and the rest of the disciples, the ones that were chosen, were called to be witnesses. They are what we call apostles. You know the difference between a disciple and an apostle? Ever wondered? Because the same people seem to be called both. Peter is a disciple, but then you start hearing him being called an apostle. Well, the difference is a disciple follows, the apostle is sent. The apostles were specifically ordained and sent by Jesus to deliver a message to the world, starting in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then into, into the uttermost parts of the earth. That's why Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Jesus said, You are to start here among your own people. I've given this message to you. You're my witnesses. Start here. I don't want you to spread this thing throughout the whole world. Israel was the servant that Jesus had in mind. He came from a far country, came to his servants, gave them something precious. And they were then to take that which he gave them and do what with it? And invest it. So he would be delivered 
the increase. Does that make sense? Okay, good. The apostles, disciples, had the initial responsibility to embrace and declare the precious truth that they'd been given. In fact, all Israel was given that awesome responsibility, but, may, but mainly failed. But we find also in the Bible that during the tribulation period, we find all of a sudden they do embrace this truth as a majority. They accept him as their king and they once again go preaching the gospel in all the world. That's what the message of the 144,000 witnesses is. That's the message of the two witnesses that we find in Jerusalem, that all of a sudden Israel realises that they've missed their opportunity and they have one final chance to accept Jesus as their king and, to, and be witnesses about him or for him in the world. So when we think of the servants in this passage, I want you to understand them first and foremost as the servants of God, which was Israel. But once a person hears the gospel, once a person accepts the gospel, guess what they then become? They also become servants. In fact, whoever hears the gospel then has an obligation to respond to the gospel. Let's look at the reward that Jesus gives them. Look at chapter 25, verse 20. For those who have accepted the money that was given to them and they go and, and they show faithfulness. Matthew 25, 20 says, And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. What was Jesus measuring here? Faithfulness. It doesn't, didn't matter how much they were given. Whether it was five, whether it was two, whether it was one or ten or a hundred, do you know what? The reward was the same. Do you notice the response was the same? For the one who had two and he delivered another two, Jesus says, well done. I'm going to make you ruler over many things. He doesn't say I'm going to make you ruler over two things or three things. He gives exactly the same response to the one who had five and delivered an extra five as to the one who had two and delivered two more. It is joy in what he was telling them. There was much joy to look forward to. And he was going to make them rulers. So the measure of their faithfulness was a test to see whether they could do what? Rule. Rule. Now, oftentimes we see in our, in our society corrupt rulers in fact if you had to really boil down and, and, and measure all the rulers that we had in the world we'd probably find that the majority of them were corrupt in fact I had a, an interesting conversation with a man in a taxi in Sydney a little while ago who was from Africa and we got into a conversation I asked him 
you know, uh, where was he from? And he told me eventually that he was from, um, I'm not sure which country it was, but he was a Christian. And I told him about what it was like in his country and, uh, and, and where he went to church over here. And I said, what's it like in your country from a political point of view? He goes, oh, he goes, the rules are all corrupt. He goes, they have money and they spend it on themselves. They spend it on armies. They spend it, And the people suffer and the people uh, struggle. And he said, many rules are like that in Africa. I suspect that, that we have it pretty good over here, to be honest with you. As much as we, we have rules or politicians that we sometimes get upset with because they don't do the right thing, by and large, we don't have that much corruption in the, in the upper forms of government. There is a fair amount of accountability, whereas in many parts of the world, there isn't much accountability. They do what they like and how they like. But for these people, for these two that were given five and two, and then brought back the same amount, brought back those on top, sorry, he says to them, you've been faithful in what I've given you. Here, here's your reward. I'm going to make you rulers. This wasn't a commission-based structure. You know, some people are in sales, and the more they sell, the more commission they actually get. This wasn't a commission-based structure. What you won on top of what you were given wasn't yours to keep anyway. Because what do they do with it? They gave it back to him, didn't they? It was his money he gave to them. They were to go and invest it and do things with it. And then when they'd finished their job, they came back and handed the whole lot back to him. Then he gives them another position of responsibility. What's our application? Well, there are many things the Lord gives us. Many things we get from heaven. And he's made us responsible for those. He's made us responsible to take what he's given to us and entrust it to our care and bring back more to make it fruitful. So he says that you know, when you plant a seed, it has to die first in order to produce a plant. But the purpose of the plant is to produce fruit. And God wants fruit. God wants fruitfulness in our lives. And that fruitfulness is directly related to faithfulness. Fruitfulness is directly related to faithfulness. If you aren't faithful, you will not be fruitful. Is that clear enough? And people wonder why their walk isn't any good, why they struggle with things, why they're not producing fruit in their life. The first thing that we need to look at is our own faithfulness. What are we doing? Are we faithful in these little things that God's given us? Because I tell you what, they're not little things. Whether it's the money that we have in our possessions, our assets, our families, our church, whatever your position in life, whether you're a pastor or an usher or a cleaner, the message here is that if you are saved this morning. If you believe that you're saved and you've taken that one talent and you've, you've invested it in your life and you've said, now I'm yours, 
you've been made a steward of God's riches and you are expected to make good on the things that he's entrusted to yours and my care. You and I have been called to invest the things of heaven, the word of God that's been delivered to us, this thing that we hold in our hands. He's told us to invest it. The grace that extends to us from, from, from his throne every day is something that we can't measure in terms of its wealth, in terms of its, its preciousness. The mercy that God has shown us and continues to show us day by day is something I cannot fathom, but it's something I have. The patience that God has shown me is something I can't even measure. You have been called to invest these things that you've received from God, from the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been called to invest them. Where? Where do I invest these things? I mean, where can I invest the Word of God? I'll tell you the first place to invest them is in your life. The first place you take the Word of God and you apply it is to yourself. Because if you apply the Word of God to yourself, you will then be a different person. It will begin to change you from the inside and you will then begin to impact people around you by its power, not by your own. In my own life, I can then declare it to others as well. I can share this grace that's been given to me, that's been poured out into my life and every day of my life with other people as well. And sometimes we consider ourselves so poor and miserable because we don't see the riches that we, that we already hold in our hands. It's sad to see Christians who consider themselves poor, weak, without what they need. The Bible teaches us that we have everything we need. Did you know? We have everything we need to live godly and holy lives. One of those is apart from salvation, we receive grace every day of our lives. The grace of God is ready to be poured upon, upon every one of us every day. The question is whether we receive it by faith or not. Whether we believe it's there for us. Part of the struggle we have is our own belief. You know, you can show mercy. The mercy of God that was shown to us allows us to be merciful to other people. When they hurt us, when they treat us badly, that's how Stephen, in the midst of being stoned, was asking God to forgive those who were stoning him. He understood the mercy of God. I can demonstrate the love of God that was shown toward me. I can invest that love in other people. I can invest the time, the assets that I hold in my hands that have been given to me as a steward and I can use them and invest them for the work of God to see men saved and changed that God might be glorified. The application is truly vast here for each and every one of us. If I truly measure my life against what's being given to me from heaven, what am I doing with it? Because we will be measured by those things. Do you understand me? The grace that's been given to us, 
the mercy, the salvation, the word of God, this church, the fellowship that you have with other people, God has given to you and I as a blessing. But not just a blessing for us, but to be invested by us, not to be squandered, not to be thrown away and treated like rubbish. God wants us to utilise what he's given us to be a blessing to other people, that his love, his grace, his mercy, his patience, his word can be celebrated by other people as well. This is our calling. This is why the Apostle Paul says, redeem the time, because the days are evil. They're short. There's not much of them. We don't have long lifespans with respect to eternity, but God calls us to use the time we have to glorify him. That's why when he speaks about the Laodicean church, there's such a rebuke. The church, the Laodicean church, he says, I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would thou were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. If anything personifies, if anything demonstrates the type of church, the age that we live in today, it's that the church is incredibly rich, but at the same time, incredibly poor. Because we're so distracted by the things of this world. We're so distracted by the things of our own life that we put ourselves first and we put God second. And we're comfortable with that. We're comfortable having God coming second. But if talents of silver were considered a great sum of money, if Jesus, one of Jesus' points was that they were given something incredibly valuable to go and invest, then how much more valuable is the word of God that we hold in our hands? How much more valuable is the mercy and the grace of God that we have? The long-suffering of God who wills that none should perish, but that all might come to a knowledge of the truth. If the words entrusted to the redeemed of Israel by Jesus Christ were in view here, then we need to understand that we carry the same and precious truth that the apostles carried with them. Nothing less. We carry what they carried. The responsibilities they had, we have today. Nothing less. The very words of Christ is a treasure here. Because by the words of our Saviour, of grace and love and mercy and peace delivered to men. What are we doing with them? This is the gospel through which God is magnified. This is the gospel through which he receives the investment and the reward. He gets magnified, glorified, when we do with his word what he wants us to do with it. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me.
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. What treasure is he talking about? He's talking about the gospel of Christ. He's talking about the very words of Jesus. He's talking about the, the, the message that's come down from heaven that we have and we're carrying it in earthen vessels. What earthen vessels? What, what's it like, like a clay pot? <laughs> this earthen vessel. This earthen vessel that's fragile and weak and can crack at any moment. And God can use that message that we carry around with us in this world to glorify himself. This is what we've been called to do. This is what we carry around within us, both in the way we live and act and speak, that people see that gospel lived out in our lives. We are witnesses that Jesus Christ is alive. Alive. Alive in heaven and alive in our hearts. Because we are meant to behave like him. Remember, we are his hands and his feet. He lives his life through us. By our weakness, by our frailty, by this earthen vessel that he keeps this immense, immensely valuable thing within, God exalts himself and exalts his son. Now let's see what the wicked servant did. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 24. Then he, which had received the one talent, came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid. And when it hid thy talent in the earth, lo, there thou hast, that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. Look what he did. And look at, look at the, the situation this guy is in. Look at what he reveals about himself. He calls him Lord, right? He still calls him Lord. And he says, I know you. You notice how he says that? Lord, I know what type of a man you are. But did he really know what type of a man he was? Because he obviously doesn't know him at all. By his words, he actually denies the type of master that he has. He says that he's a hard man. Unreasonable in his expectations. And he's harsh. Funny, because the other two servants didn't think so. The other two servants accepted what was given to them and they went and achieved what he asked for them to do. And the one who got an extra two talents, he wasn't harsh with him and said, you only got me two. In fact, if the one had come back with one more, he would have been happy with it. In fact, he would have even been happy if he'd given the money to the people to invest 
and get interest on it, he says. He says about his master, he says that he expects things that don't belong to him. In other words, you expect to reap where you haven't sown. You expect to, you expect to gain where you haven't even been. So what's he saying about him? He's saying he's unreasonable, he's unjust. It's not fair that he should be expecting these things of him. So what does he do? He becomes afraid. He becomes afraid of him because of his own disobedience. He rejected the instruction given to him by his master. So what does he do with the money? He hides it under the ground for fear. So what did he do with that? Is this someone who's heard the gospel and has accepted the gospel and then loses it later on? No. That's someone who has heard the gospel and rejects it and buries it. They don't want to do anything with it. They're afraid of it. They're afraid of the expectations. Have you ever heard, you share the gospel with people and they say to you, oh, I can't give up. I can't see how I can give up going to nightclubs. No. I can't, I don't see how I can give up my friends. What are they saying? That God is, has unreasonable expectations of me. Surely he wouldn't expect me to give up all these things. They're saying the very same things that the, the wicked servant said. So he, he buries the money, then digs it back up and says, Here, here's what you gave me, take it back. Wonderful response for someone who's meant to be a servant. The master doesn't agree with the assessment, but simply, simply repeats the charge back and says, oh, you, this is what you believe about me, is it? Okay. Now, this is the story of all those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beginning with the nation of Israel. This is a story about all of them. They reject God for a number of reasons and many of those are listed in this, this little passage here. Why people reject the gospel and are not saved. They think God is too hard and harsh. That his commands are too burdensome to bear. Too unreasonable for a modern day thinker like me. You know, you, you looked at many modern day gospels you don't hear many of them that mention the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross cleanses us from sin. Why do they throw that out? Why don't they mention the blood of Christ? Because it's not really something that fins into our modern day thinking. It's too antiquated. It, 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 it offends our, our modern day uh, intellect. No, people think God is too hard and harsh. I've heard from more than one person, how can God sacrifice his own son? What type of a God is that? Fair enough. You think God is too hard and harsh? He expects things from men that aren't easy to take. Surely he doesn't expect, expect me to give him all of my free time. My money, which I earn by the sweat of my own brow, all the effort I put into this thing, surely he doesn't want that of me. Surely all this study that I've done and I've earned these degrees and, and certificates and diplomas, surely all my, everything that, that I am, he doesn't want, does he? 
He doesn't deserve that. I put the effort into that. They're mine. I mean, I earned that degree for me, not for him. I earned it so I can have a career, so I can earn good money. What right does he have to ask me to give him of that? What about my family? My home? My car? My money? My attention? My entertainment? All of that he wants? He expects that is his? I mean, all these things I've got, I put all the effort into it. They don't belong to him, do they? Why would he even want these things anyway? He's God in heaven. He's got everything. What would he want my stuff for? They're mine. That's my world. He's got plenty. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go to church every week. Right? I'll go to church every week. I'll read the Bible. I'll try to read the Bible each day. I'll read 15 to 20 minutes of it each day. Okay? I might even get involved in a bit of ministry on the side. But don't expect me to do it all. You can't expect me for my whole life to be devoted to you, surely. That's unreasonable. I mean, God, I've got, I've got a space for you here. I've got this part. See that? There's an empty space here. This, I know this is all filled up with my stuff, okay? This is all filled up. But I've got this space for you here, which is a Sunday morning, and I've got some extra time on the side. So, look, I'll try to squeeze you into my, my busy schedule. And, look, I'll even give you some money on a Sunday morning. How's that sound? Does that sound good? I think it's a pretty good deal, God. Is it? The Bible says we've been bought with a price. Do you know what was spent on you and me? Spent. He gave his only son to buy someone as wretched as me. And here I am, I want to give him back this much. So we become afraid of God. Afraid of him. You know why? Because we think he's nasty. We think he's unreasonable. He's not fair. I'll be happier without him, really. I'll be happy just to keep him in that box over there. And all, the while, all the while I'm building up my my prestige, my friends, my career, my life. It's mine, you see. It's really mine. It's not his. Yet there are people going to hell today who are saying those same words. So when I hear someone from the pulpit telling me that I have to live my life as a sacrifice, to God that I need to give him the glory for everything in my life that I have to make him absolutely first in everything in my life 
that he expects me to sacrifice my time and my effort and all my devotion for him. My natural tendency is to bury it. Bury it deep. Bury it so deep that it doesn't come up again. When I read that passage in the Bible that says that this is how I'm to live, I make sure I skim over that one really quickly, just in case it starts to pierce a bit too much. Make sure we bury it deep, just in case. My friends, we need to take this matter into account. If this is the pattern of our lives, if this is our pattern, that we only accept the things that we're comfortable to do, that we only take on the things that will fit into our neat little lifestyle, that we're happy to give God this much, but not the rest, do you understand that that servant died? He lost it all. The things that he thought he had, he lost completely. Even that which he had was taken from him. Look at verse 26. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchanges, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. That's interest. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. The Lord calls him a wicked and slothful, that's lazy servant. Even if he had simply given the amount of money to others to invest and get interest on, his master would have even accepted it. But no. He chose to bury it deep in the earth, reject the command, pretend that he would have been okay. What a ludicrous and rebellious person. Why would I say rebellious? Because he refused to risk anything for God. He refused to take it and do something with it, which is a risk. To take the step of faith and obedience. This is what he was being asked to do. A servant who refuses to get off his backside and get to the work has revealed well and truly what type of servant he is. He's all but an imposter. And the Bible calls people who say they follow God and don't really hypocrites it's the same thing isn't it our world is full of them absolutely full we have them up to here hypocrites the scary thing is sometimes we are we don't see it turn with Luke turn to Luke with me in chapter 19 
Because Luke has a similar parable and he finishes it in a, in a similar sort of way. Luke chapter 19, verse 24. He says, And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not even that he hath shall be taken away from him. Look at verse 27. But those, those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. You know why I call this servant a rebellious? Is because what he's essentially done is to say, I will not have you to be my master. Even though I call you Lord, I reject you as my Lord. I will not have you to be my master. I refuse to do what you've asked me to do. And that's why he says, his enemies... The same way the Jews rejected Jesus to be their king. Even today, they're still looking for someone to fit that category. They're looking for that Messiah to come along and fulfill all those prophecies that Jesus has already fulfilled. But there are so many more who, when they hear the gospel, reject that Jesus Christ came to save them from their sins. Jesus is speaking about here a rejection of the truth. It's people who have heard the truth, this incredibly valuable thing, and they reject it. They choose to bury it. They choose not to do anything with it, but they choose to hide it as far away from them as possible. And we know this is, this is what he's speaking about. Mark chapter 4, verse 23. I'll just read this out to you. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, Take heed what you hear. With what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear, more shall be given. For he that hath, to him shall be given. And he that hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he hath. Exact same way he says it, as with the, with the parable. Exactly the same finish. Even that which he hath will be taken away from him. You know why? Because people hear but they refuse to listen. Turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. Because Jesus repeats a similar thing again. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. Just so you understand, this is the purpose of the parables. Matthew 13, 10 says, And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever shall hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I unto them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not. Neither do they understand. In, and in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, 
and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and shall be converted and I should heal them. You like that? Same thing. Exactly the same thing. The servant who he had come to give that money to, that precious thing to, was the one who heard the gospel, who heard the message that Jesus was the Messiah and he rejected it. He heard it, but it wouldn't sink into his heart. He saw it, but he really couldn't believe his eyes. And unfortunately, he lost everything that he thought that he even had. Be careful in the way you hear the truth of God. Be careful. We've each heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons in our lives. What have we done with them? Do you understand that we will be judged more harshly because we have been given more? I'm not saying you'll lose your salvation, but what will you do? The day when you stand before Christ and you have nothing to show really for what you've what He's given to us. We are rich beyond imagination. Rich. There are many things that we have that our, our, that other people in the world do not have. But consider that God is not mocked. God is not mocked. You can't play him for the fool, you understand. What he gives to us, he intends to be used. The grace he gives to us, he intends to receive. You can continually reject the grace of God. There may come a day when he actually stops it. That's up to him. You cannot hear and hear and hear the truth and never come to the knowledge of the truth because your heart continually rejects it in favour of your own lusts and desires. And this is the charge to the church. That God has given us many things. God has given us so much, we can't even measure it. The question is, what do we do with it? Do we pile it in a room and lock the door and leave it there? Or do we do something with it? Turn to Romans chapter 12 with me. And we come to the conclusion. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 to verse 6. Now listen very carefully here. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he speaks to the church. For I say, through the grace given unto me. What was he given? Grace. He was given the grace, okay? To every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. What has God dealt to every man? Faith. Look at verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, which means not the same position, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. We're connected to each other. So none of us should think that we're, we're more high than anyone else. Look at, look at verse 6. Having then... Gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. What was given to us? 
gifts and grace. Because the Bible says that the, any gift that you and I have was given to us by the Holy Spirit. Okay, And the grace to use it is also given to us by God. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of what? Faith. What did God give you originally? Faith. The question here is that God gives us gifts, grace and faith. Grace every day to get you through. You weren't just saved by grace and God leaves it there. God continues to give us grace in order to grow and to, and to be and to mould us into the image of his son. But the faith he gave us originally is something we need to put to the test. I've often said this, faith is like a muscle. God gave you the original muscle, but if you never lose it, what happens to the muscle? It eventually withers. God wants us to test that faith, to put that, to accept by faith the grace that's been offered to us, and yes, it's going to make us uncomfortable. It's going to put you out of your comfort zone. It's going to make you feel sometimes bad because God might put you in a difficult position. You know, when I read the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New, how many of God's prophets, leaders and holy people did he leave in a comfortable position? Can you name me one? Which of them had it good the whole way through? I don't know any. In fact, most of them were stoned, sawn in half, ridiculed, rejected. They went through pretty difficult times. When you accept the grace of God, God's giving you that grace for a reason. It's not to go sitting on a couch. God gives you grace so you can actually overcome an obstacle or to achieve something for him. This is our challenge. That God gives us gifts, grace and faith. But it's our, it's our responsibility to use that faith and make it grow by accepting more and more grace so we might grow in God's knowledge. Don't think of ourselves more holy than we should because everything that we have that's good is from him, not from us. Let me close these thoughts. The Jews in Jesus' day were the recipients of an incredible treasure. Grace was being offered directly from the giver of life in the words that he spoke to them. They had a wonderful opportunity to receive not just his words, but him as their Lord, their Saviour and their King, but they refused him. They rejected him as their Messiah. He came to his own, the Bible says, and his own received him not. But there were some of his own that received him, that did receive him. And to them he gave grace and the right to become, the Bible says, the sons of God. These he entrusted with his precious words. And they recorded them, they memorized them, they lived them, and they declared them. And we are here today because they were faithful then with what he gave them. They were the first faithful servants. My friends, the same grace... The same truth has been offered to us today. We have been the recipients of that which is life-changing. And we have been carrying it around within us ever since we accepted that truth. We have received immeasurable blessings, even though we can't see them sometimes, that have come from receiving this grace and possessing this truth. And we have been called upon to invest this truth 
in these fragile lives that we have, that we now call his, we have one single opportunity, one single opportunity, one single lifetime, one moment by moment walk. Every moment that we miss is lost. We can't go back and get it. We can't change our minds after we've made them, after we've followed them through. We have one opportunity, one life to live, one judgment that will come. To invest what he's given to us and produce fruit. This life is not our own. As the scriptures tell us in Colossians, we have died with Christ and have already risen with him. If this is true of you this morning, if it's true of me, then let this truth compel us to take all that he's given us, the entirety, the whole, and not the part, the complete and not a portion of our own selves and everything we claim to be, and to offer it to him, to offer it for him, to give back what is rightfully his, not mine, for his glory, for his magnification. For the day will soon come that there will be a reckoning when all that we've done, all that we've said, all that we've chosen in our lives will become very visible in front of him and in front of us and will be measured against what he's invested in us, each according to our several ability. doesn't matter how much he's given you, it's what you do with it. We are and have what God has given to us. The question is what we will do with what we are and what we have. What will his verdict be for you and for I when we stand before his throne one day? There are those who indeed call Jesus Lord and Master and to some extent they make a show of what they claim to be. But in the end... The Pharisees, the Sadducees, couldn't keep up the pretense in front of him. He exposed them for what they were, hypocrites. In front of people, they were fine. Because in front of other servants, they made a show of it. But they couldn't hide behind the eyes that see into the heart. Couldn't hide behind the veil which was torn from top to bottom. What will his verdict be for us? I pray that there is not one person here today who has fallen into the same trap as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, playing a game of masquerade that may serve to fool the other servants you cannot see, but who will one day be exposed for what they are. The grace of God is extended to every man and he gives every man a measure of faith but the reality is that despite the grace that he gives, most will choose to bury it and the truth deep in the ground and what they think that they possess in this world, they will lose. Money, wealth, power, career, homes, relationships, freedom, independence. In the end, all those things will mean nothing. They will be lost. If you think you may be in this category today, if you think that you may be in this category, how long will you waver between life and death? 
How long will you waver between heaven and hell? How long do you think the grace of God or the mercy or the patience of God will endure? God may indeed have been long-suffering toward you, but there's no guarantee that this patience will not expire today. Then all will be lost. If you are one of his chosen, if you have put your faith in him, if you have accepted that what he has invested in your life, you, you will willingly give back to him, then you have been called to a mission. A mission. To never take your eyes off that prize. Take everything that God has given you and do your very best to see that you make the most of it. And the day will come by the grace of God when you will hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. God bless you. Thank you.